even if you look at some of the wonderful thinkers in ecological economics, so someone like Herman Daly and his idea of a steady state, still very much premised on notion of efficient allocation of resources. And I think efficiency is a it's a necessary but um, um, insufficient criteria for thinking about how we allocate resources. So just doing things efficiently is, is a it's a means towards an end and you need a real end. And for me, that has to be something about justice, not just about kind of the maximum amount of good for the maximum amount of people. This is Stefan Pardolo and welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with David Absin. Dave holds a professorship for sustainability economics and assessment at Lufana University in Germany. In the podcast, Dave explains the path that led him to academia, and then we discuss his understanding of sustainability, which is premised on aspects of justice. We also discuss his work on the concept of land sparing versus land sharing, and on the ecosystem services concept, including its operationalization and dimensions of governance. Dave also explains the leverage points concept and its usefulness for sustainability science research. We touch on numerous other topics, including open access publishing and also how he thinks about interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. So please welcome Dave Apson. Um, we did a paper back in 2015 on the Urban Ecosystem Services Literature Review, and we just had a paper together on privatizing the commons. But uh, I was looking at your your profile online, and maybe the online is sometimes misleading. It doesn't necessarily represent what you're doing at the moment. But um, it said you had three broad research areas or three broad interdisciplinary research areas. And one was the integration of economic, social, and natural science perspectives on sustainability issues within the context of multifunctional agro-systems. The second was the theory and operationalization of concept of ecosystem services, with a particular focus on ecosystem service perception, valuation, and normative foundations of the concept. And the third was the systematic understanding of modeling of complex systems. And I just looked at your Google Scholar. You guys just had a paper came out on, or that you were leading, the resilience of Australian agricultural landscapes characterized by land sparing versus land sharing. So that's a little bit more um, than the stuff that you and I have worked together on. And one thing I was interested in, we haven't spent so much time talking you and I together about this, but what is like your your academic history actually? How did you get to Lufana in Germany? You're originally from the UK. I'm not actually exactly sure where, but what was your trajectory in going through and, and getting to this point where you're focusing on those three areas? Okay, so that's... Um... Slightly odd story, I guess. So I used to be a a mechanical engineer, a design engineer, and I worked for a design company making equipment for cars, basically. And um, I'd been working on a project for about a year, designing a new uh, digital airline hose for inflating car tires. And it was a lot of work. It was quite a hard project. And I made this nice product and I was pleased. And I went to the, I had to pitch it to to the board of this company. And so it's a standard boardroom, you know, 25 foot long single wooden table, probably from some for some kind of hardwood from the rainforest and all these people pulling up to to the meeting room in their Jaguars and their Rolls Royces and their Bentleys and stuff. And I presented this new product we'd made and I could just see the kind of pound signs rolling in their eyes. They were not interested at all in any of the any of the kind of work which had gone into it, just how much money you could make. So somehow I just thought to myself I was only 24 at the time or something I thought I can't I can't live like this I can't do that with the reward for my work being some rich people getting richer so I went uh, traveling for almost six years I guess just wandering around the world enjoying myself I'd always sort of been involved in environmental issues protesting and going on marches and this kind of things but never really knowing what I should do and then I was in the in the mountains in India, in um, Himalchal Pradesh, and I met this sadhu. So the, the sadhus, for people who don't know, are these kind of wandering aesthetics who give up all their worldly goods in order to contemplate the meaning of life. And uh, this guy, he was a pretty amazing guy, actually. He said to me, uh, the most important thing in life is to be conscious of how you step on the earth. And somehow this really resonated with me, really kind of... I thought, yes, that, that really makes sense. That's something that, that we should pay attention to as human beings. And kind of over some months, I thought, well, it was pretty easy for a guy like that who literally owns two items of clothes, a bowl and a stick, to be aware of how they step on the earth. Um, but what does it mean for people like us who live in these modern Western consumer societies? How do I know how I'm stepping on the earth? And how do I know how to step more lightly on the earth? So eventually that led me back to... Um, academia. I did a master's degree in sustainable development and then a PhD um, 
looking at resilience of um, farm landscapes from a kind of ecological and economic perspective. Um, and then, so my partner is German and uh, she said, we've been living in, in Leeds, Northern England, which of course is grey and rainy. She said, let's move to Germany where it's sunny and, and warm. Right. Um, but we moved to Northern Germany where it's grey and rainy. Um, and it just so happened. So I didn't know anything about Leuphana University where I am now. But it happened that it was not far away from where her parents live and a job came up looking at ecosystem services which is a subject i was interested in so i applied and uh this is where i ended up and the reason i think i stayed here was because my initial focus was really on understanding how we step on the earth to understand what impacts our activities have and loifana as a the faculty of sustainability at loifana has a really strong focus on not just understanding how the world is, but thinking about how you transform the world, thinking about how you change things. So it's a very much has a focus on transdisciplinary research and thinking about active change. And that, to me, I think my mindset changes slightly from thinking about how do I step on the earth to how do we change the way we step on the earth. That's a, a very different sort of question, I think, in which sustainability science has to grapple with more than it currently does. Right. So sustainability science is really good at uh, modeling how the world is or providing abstract models of how the world might be and not very good at making the link between those two things and that's where i think uh, i would like my research to move in that direction okay yeah well you can read about on you can read online about people and see their bio and see their research interests but how would you define yourself where you focus now at the moment so i would i guess i would describe myself as a sustainability scientist. And by that, I mean, um, I'm not defined by a discipline or by a method, but by a particular issue. And the uh, kind of issues that I'm really interested in are sustainable agricultural uh, landscapes, I guess. So how we are able to provide food uh, to people in a way which is uh, sustainable um, and by sustainability, I, maybe I have a slightly different understanding than many people. So for me, sustainability is fundamentally a justice concern. So when I think about sustainability, I really think about it in terms of justice. So you can think about the classic definition of sustainability is uh, from the Brundtland report from our common future as being meeting the needs of the current generation without um, inhabiting the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And for me, that's a uh, a justice concern. So it's about uh, distribution among the current generation, distribution uh, between generations into an intergenerational equity, but it also has procedural justice. So who gets to say what those distributions should be, for example. And then there's also the notion of justice to non-humans. So how how we justly allocate resources between humans and non-humans. Um, my, my technical title uh, at Lofana is um, I'm a junior professor in sustainable economics. Um, so for people not from the German system, a junior professor is something between a, a kind of associate and assistant professor, I guess. So not a full professorship, but, but sort of moving towards that. And sustainability economics is an interesting one. So when I applied for the job, um, I looked on Google Scholar uh, for papers on sustainability economics, and there was essentially 10 papers all of them entitled things like what is sustainability economics yeah so so as a as a science it doesn't really exist i don't think uh, but for me the idea is relatively simple so if we think about the classic definition of economics would be um, the science of studying uh, the efficient allocation of scarce means among competing potentially beneficial ends that's kind of how economists describe what they do and so for me sustainability science is about um, studying their the just allocation of resources among competing potentially beneficial ends. And for that, we need to understand some notion of justice and some no notion of a beneficial ends. And I think both of those are somehow uh, lacking often in the kind of research we see in sustainability science. Right, yeah, that's interesting. I wanna follow up on two of those aspects. I mean, where do you see yourself in the, in the spectrum between environmental economics and ecological economics? And if I understand correctly, it was, the justice issue kind of connects more of the, is it the right more of the ecological economics into the distribution of resources and that just aspect is what then translates into sustainability science yeah so I, I think it's yeah exactly so even if you look at 
so for me, the distinction between ecological economics and resource economics and neoclassical economics is the understanding of the economic system as a subsystem of the environment. Uh, so an ecological economist starts from the premise that the um, that the economic system is entirely dependent on drawing resources from the environment and uh, pushing waste back out into the environment. And this is something which is either not considered at all in neoclassical economics or really they're considered as subcomponents as opposed to one embedded in the other in resource economics. Um, and the distinction for me between that and sustainability economics or sustainability science is that even if you look at some of the wonderful thinkers in ecological economics, so someone like Herman Daly and his idea of a steady state, still very much premised on notion of efficient allocation of resources. And I think efficiency is a it's a necessary but um, um, insufficient criteria for thinking about how we allocate resources. So just doing things efficiently is, is a it's a means towards an end and you need a real end. And for me, that has to be something about justice, not just about kind of the maximum amount of good for the maximum amount of people. Yeah, that's interesting. I think this aspect of justice, it, it probably differentiates at least the way that you think about sustainability compared to other people's, especially from an economics perspective. I mean, maybe you could pull apart a little bit more that idea of efficiency. And this is also something that you and I worked together on in the recent paper, um, privatizing the commons and expanding the criteria for which we evaluate privatization as as an efficient mechanism for managing natural resources. Like, can you pull that apart a little bit more? Like, what do you mean by by efficiency has to achieve some sort of normative goal? So, so efficiency is the means to an end. It's not if we. So I kind of when I think about ends, you can make a distinction between um, instrumental means and kind of intrinsic ends. And intrinsic ends means that you value something as an end in its own right, without regard to any other uh, desired goal or end. So, from a utilitarian perspective, the intrinsic end is happiness somehow. Um, so. Anything else is always instrumental towards that end. And efficiency is only meaningful when you apply it to some particular desired end state. So we can efficiently allocate resources to building weapons, for example, and that's efficient, but it's not really necessarily desirable. So for me, the, the starting point of any kind of economic model has to be a clear uh, underpinning uh, idea of what our desired end is. And that can't be efficiency because that's only a means towards some other ends. And so the, this kind of um, unthinking focus on just efficient allocation misses the point that efficiency without thinking about a desired end state is, is kind of somewhat misplaced, I would say. Right. And yeah. One of the one of the examples is so one of the things about efficiency is it becomes in itself a normative goal. And it kind of that kind of makes sense. So you can think about efficiency as being non-wastefulness. That's kind of a classic definition of efficiency. And of course, you want to be non-wasteful, right? That that makes sense. But um, you can also think about other equally sensible uh, ways of using resources, like resilient use of resources, where you have redundancy built into it. And so, in order for a system to resource use system to be resilient, often you need to have a lack of efficiency because you need to have multiple sources of the same functions in case one of them fails or is lost somewhere in that system. So what often happens is this kind of tool for achieving an end in its uh, own right becomes an end in its own right. So now we focus heavily on this notion of efficiency, much in the same way as we've focused heavily on GDP as, as a kind of a goal in its own right. And often, I think this is something we see a lot in, in science, is that we develop uh, tools for assessing means towards an end, and those tools become the end in their own right, and we lose track of, of what we're actually trying to achieve. So we're not trying to achieve efficiency. Like, that's just meaningless. Mm. Well, human well-being might be a goal we're trying to achieve, and efficiency is a means towards that. Potentially, potentially not. Right. Yeah. Well, one of those other goals which I which you hear a lot about is equity. Mm -hmm. And how how do you think about the difference between justice and equity in this context? So I think equity is is a potentially a form of justice, but there are forms of justice which aren't necessarily related to equity. So I tend to think about distributional justice, um, which would potentially be equity, uh, but I also think about procedural justice. So I really like this distinction between uh, sustainability as focusing on um, an end point. So the end point being a, a fair distribution of resources somehow, equitable distribution of resources, you might say, um, or sustainability as being a process. 
where because we live in a complex world, we can't really know what the outcomes are going to be. So you can't guarantee an equitable uh, kind of distribution of resources, but maybe you can think about a, a, a just process for thinking how about how you how you distribute resources between individuals. And so I think that that for me, why I don't use the word equity, but I prefer the word justice because it can take into account uh, sustainability as a process and sustainability as a as a kind of uh, end point. And I'm I'm a bit uncomfortable. Although my kind of so my background being somewhat ecological economics, uh, so economic background and also ecology, it's quite focused on outcomes. But actually, I think we're in the kind of complex world we're dealing with, socio-ecological systems, global scales. Thinking about outcomes is often difficult, right? And so you have to think about what what processes might be thought of as sustainable as opposed to what outcomes. Right. Right. Yeah, well, it leads. I want to go back and visit the the three focus areas that I had on your, on your website or on your profile page at the university. And the first one was the integration of economic, social, and natural science perspectives on sustainability issues in the context of agricultural systems. Can you give an example of the type of project or a paper where you guys worked on which combined those aspects in in agricultural issues? So the the reason I'm interested in that. So when I did my PhD, somewhat foolishly, I was supervised by four different people across three schools and so I was I was sitting in uh, colloquiums uh, about sustainable agricultural systems from conservation biologists and ecologists and they would just have such a different way of understanding the world or kind of framing the the same system, the same goal of sustainability than when I was in a meeting in the School of Geography talking about these things or School of Environment talking about these things. So um, a kind of example where I, I think you can usefully connect these two is, is through notions like land sparing and land sharing. So maybe to give some background on, on this research. So in, I think, 2005, there was a paper by Green et al. out from uh, Cambridge University, and they made a pretty simple argument. They said, OK, any piece of land has two potential goods that it can produce. These are a bunch of uh, conservation biologists who are doing this research. They said uh, land can be used to provide food for people, or it can be uh, used to provide uh, space for biodiversity. And there's a trade-off between those two goods. And there's two ways you can allocate resources um, towards those. You can either have uh, highly intensive agricultural production, maximizing food uh, in one place, and spare some of the other land elsewhere for biodiversity. Or you can have extensive kind of organic farming where you provide uh, some level of yield over a larger area, but larger, but more biodiversity across the whole landscape. So in the first one, no biodiversity in, in the agricultural land and lots of biodiversity in the spared land. And the other one, uh, biodiversity and food are shared across the landscape. So it's a pretty simple narrative, right? And you can then uh, create simple models uh, or maybe actually sophisticated models which look at the relationship between how many farmland birds you have and particular patterns of sparing and sharing. And that became a really popular idea, um, partly because um, it's sciencey. You know, you can do it at a global level. You can quantify things. You can do nice statistics and you can find uh, patterns. So you can say that in spared landscapes, uh, there are more birds in, in this system and therefore we should have spared landscapes. And one of the things which became obvious when I saw that is this is uh, trying to understand how to manage a socioeconomic system from a purely ecological perspective on uh, how much resources are available for, for um, farmland birds or other types of biodiversity. So what they basically did in the first one of these papers, they said, OK, the amount of food we produce in these systems is fixed. And therefore, we just have to maintain that total yield across the landscape and figure out what configuration provides the most birds. Um, and what was completely missing was any relationship between how landscapes are actually managed. So the, the, one of the things they, they started by saying was that um, if you intensively produce food in one area, land will magically be shared, spared elsewhere for, for biodiversity. So um, as long as we maintain our yield, somehow there's a there's a single controller who says, OK, now we've got this amount of yield in the world in terms of food, we can spare the rest for biodiversity. So no understanding of, of any, any of these real relationships. So recent research has found, for example, that if you intensify the production in one area, um, you build infrastructure which allows that to happen. It actually encourages people next door to intensify their production as well. So when you see your neighbour is now growing 10, 10 tonnes of wheat per hectare instead of seven, 
you think, oh, this land is not marginal for wheat production. Now I'll produce 10 tons as well. So there was never any link between um, their models and reality. So kind of some of the work we've been doing on land sparing and land sharing is trying to point out that if you really want to understand how to manage these systems, you have to understand what the drivers of change in these systems are. How So I have a, a book chapter came out recently thinking about how um, agricultural intensification occurs, what all the driving factors are behind that. So just providing a model which says, if you have a landscape which has 30% uh, agricultural production and 50% um, spared land for biodiversity, you'll have more birds, doesn't tell you anything about how you actually achieve that that goal. So um, we've done some research which tries to start to think about um, land sparing and land sharing, not just from a ecological perspective, but from a social ecological perspective. So what what, what, how do people choose to, to allocate resources to those lands? At what scales do these things work? And yeah, trying to get more useful models, essentially. Yeah, I'm interested also in how the ecosystem services concept kind of fits into that type of thinking. Um, I know you you have quite a few papers on, on the ecosystem services concept. How does that integrate into into your thinking on that issue? Yeah, so one of the one of the of course one of the fundamental problems of of the land sparing land sharing. Uh, model is that it says there are two things which are provided by a landscape which is biodiversity or food production but of course uh, land provides many more of those uh, many more services than just food and uh, biodiversity so uh, regulating services uh, uh, supporting services cultural services these kind of things so one of the things which i think is useful about an ecosystem service perspective as a heuristic model um, it provides a way of thinking about all the different types of values humans can ascribe to a landscape and to be able to start to think about how those are interdependent on each other, how um, how they uh, co-vary or how, how their trade-offs between providing different services. One of the things which I think is particularly important, and this is something which is only just starting to happen now in the ecosystem service research, is to understand not just what the aggregate value of different landscapes are in terms of all the services they provide, but to whom those services flow. So one of the one of the things about um, this land sparing, land sharing is that it can tell you the aggregate value in terms of biodiversity, so how many birds, birds there are, and it can tell you the aggregate value in terms of how much yield there is. It doesn't tell you anything about who actually benefits from that. And that, that's what determines what that landscape looks like, right? The, the people who get the benefits from managing it in a particular way. So uh, uh, a focus on disaggregating values in terms of flows of benefits from ecosystem services, I think, is really key for, for making that link between these abstract models of an optimized system, uh, which says we should have this much yield and, and these many birds in this type of pattern, and how people actually choose to manage their landscape depending on who those benefits flow to. So we don't maximize uh, systems for benefit of carbon sequestration because the beneficiaries um, for that um, aren't the managers of that land, for example. So it, it brings it starts to tie into these notions of, okay, uh, global commons and what the values are, who they flow to, who has control of these kind of things. So hopefully in the next few months, we'll start a new project in Ethiopia uh, looking at uh, a coffee producing landscape and what we're trying to do there is understand um, what the ecosystem services are which flow from that landscape, who benefits from those. So um, the coffee production largely benefits people in the West who are consuming that coffee and the people who are processing the coffee somewhere in the supply chain and not so much the people in the local system. So not just to understand the aggregate amount of uh, ecosystem service value from a landscape, but really who benefits from it and who has the power to make changes in that system. So you can create an idealized model of, of what that landscape might look like. And it might be that if you go to the people in Ethiopia and say, which one of these four choices would you prefer? Which of these scenarios of development? And they say, oh, we'd really like this one, which is about a combination of cash crops, which allow us to send our children to school and uh, kind of have uh, good uh, medical um, access to medicine and these kind of things, but also maintaining some of our local cultural values and some of these other things we care about. But if in the end, the people who make the decision are based in Germany buying coffee beans, then that, that's problematic, right? So we're really trying to understand this relationship between ecosystem service provision, uh, flows of benefits, and then the power to actually change these systems. So yeah. that for me is, is kind of what's interesting about ecosystem service research at the moment. 
Yeah, I want to follow up on the ecosystem services, but one question I had in the meantime was you said you don't define yourself necessarily by methods or a particular discipline, but more on a particular issue surrounded agricultural system sustainability issues. But how do you think about when, when you said you have a new project coming up, what does that look like methodologically when you want to look at the different flows between people and the connections? What, what kind of methods does a project like that employ? Um, so this will have um, some kind of classical uh, ecological modeling, um, looking at ecological niches and uh, how different land use patterns are likely to lead to different outcomes in terms of uh, biodiversity. And then it will have uh, some some relatively simple uh, economic modeling in terms of ecosystem service flows. So probably using something um, like uh, and now like the invest uh, model. So relatively simple understanding of land use and, and the kind of services that can provide. But then a lot of the research is really about understanding doing like network analysis for example and, and social power analysis and trying to understand um from those basic models so basically what we what we're doing in this research we have this is a follow-on piece of research from a colleague of mine Jan fisher and he already has four scenarios developed so participatory scenarios developed with people in the landscape about how how that landscape might develop over time and now what we're going to try and do is uh, ecological and economic models of what that means in terms of biodiversity and um and ecosystem service flows, and then to try and understand uh, who those flows actually go to by by doing kind of a network analysis of value chains and these kind of things. Right. Does um, that come? Does the raw data from that come from both qualitative and quantitative sources? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, there was a four-year project which has so a lot of the uh, ec basic ecological modeling has already been done, and a lot of there's there was survey work on. On ecosystem service so one of the things that we don't want to rely on is purely using an invest program which just says here's a landscape here's a land use um we know that one ton of wheat uh, sequesters this much carbon in in the soil and therefore has this value but so there was a, a lot of um, household surveys about how do you use this landscape what are what are the services and, and disservices you get from that so um i think it's quite important not to kind of use these globally abstracted models for assessing ecosystem services, but really to think about how do the people in those landscapes uh, kind of derive benefits from, from the landscapes they live within and to see how that will change depending on uh, if that becomes an intensive coffee landscape or kind of an extensive coffee landscape with uh, nature reserves in it, for example. Right, right. Well, I wanted to revisit the ecosystem services concept and get your perspective on this kind of tension which has existed in the past between especially when you think about economists using the concept between valuation monetary valuation and non-monetary valuation um and some can see it as a tool an econ economic tool or a concept for to to bring monetary valuation um into into the ecosystem realm how do you kind of see where the state of the field is at the moment in combining those two yeah so i think the first thing to point for people who who can't are unaware of this is that the economic valuation of biodiversity was largely driven by conservation biologists and not by economists. So some economists had started working on this notion of total uh, environmental value in the 1960s, but somehow it wasn't very interesting to economists. And it was only really in the 1980s where conservation biologists started to say, look, we've been making this deontological argument for conservation that we should conserve nature because it's the right thing to do for 100 years and it's still being lost. So let's make an argument based on human self-interest. So this comes back to Paul Nan Ehrlich and their book Extinction, you know, the bolt, uh, right. the rivet poppers. Um, so that kind of argument, I think, is is interesting because what I found, actually, I, I had a class today where I got my students to put themselves on a continuum between people who thought that it was ethically justified to uh, ascribe economic value to biodiversity um, or not ethically justified to do that. And it's a, somehow it's the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong way to think about our relationship to nature. And they all shuffled towards the it's ethically kind of pretty suspect. And then I said, I said, OK, now putting aside the ethics, how many of you think it's a useful concept? Um, and they all shuffled the other direction. So right. despite the fact that they ethically think that it's the wrong thing to do is ascribe economic value to aspects of biodiversity, they're all quite um, happy to do that. And I, and I kind of see, so I think what we saw in the ecosystem service concept is it started off as just a heuristic, as a as a way of thinking about 
our relationship to nature, which was really quite, uh, so Richard Norgaard called it an eye-opening metaphor, um, because it was a new way to think about all the value which is lost when we change the system from its natural state or more natural state to one which is optimizing one thing like food production. Um, and that led, but once we started doing that, once we started thinking about that heuristic for understanding our relations and independence with nature, then of course the scientists in us started quantifying stuff. So there was this huge rash of paper about how do we categorize different ecosystem services and then how do we quantify the value of those services and how do we monetize the value of those services. And I think now there's a shift back towards this more heuristic understanding. So you're starting to see notions like uh, relational values coming into into the ecosystem service research. So with like uh, IPBES, I think there's a there's a, some pushback towards this uh, uh, obsession with quantification. Once you once you figured out you can quantify things, to thinking about no, we should just use this as a tool for us to think about how we relate to biodiversity and not use it as a management tool. So I'm I'm somewhat guilty of this, right? I I was part of the UK National Ecosystem service assessment, one of the few economists who were involved in that. And uh, what happened there was that they, lots of ecologists had been doing some research in the UK about uh, the state of our ecosystems. And they thought, well, we're writing this report, we better get some economists to do some economics on it. So often the way these things happen, right? right. And so they got some economists, one of which I was asked to uh, kind of help with that thing. And we wrote two chapters out of this 2032 chapter, I think it was. A report on the states of the of UK's ecosystems, and uh, those are the two chapters which were, of course, mentioned by the press. Those are the two chapters which the people in uh, in government seem to pay attention to. You know, that they were the one of those chapters, the one which was turned into a publication for science because it's quantifying things, and that's kind of good science, good objective science of of kind of right. measuring change in systems, and that. So that was one thing that makes me very wary of the ecosystem service concept. I think as a as a heuristic for us thinking about our relationship to nature, it's fantastic. Once you start to uh, use it as a way as a management tool, it's it's problematic because there's so so much that so many assumptions built into the way we ascribe value to those different aspects of of the functioning of ecosystems that that those values are, are kind of they have to be taken with a grain of salt, frankly. Right. Yeah, that was another question I wanted to ask was this governance aspect of ecosystem services, especially if you think about some of the frameworks like IPIS or if you think about uh, the ecosystem services cascade, you know, where is the state of governance within or governance theory within ecosystem services concept? Um, what, what I've seen is mostly there's a lot of focus and emphasis on identifying the types of different services and the categories of different types of ecosystem services and even the different values. Mm. Uh, which are coming out of that, but there's less of this feedback loop of governance in, into what that means in terms of actionable policies we can make or even degenerating certain governance theories around the ecosystem services concept. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, so I, I agree. So the the classic uh, cascade is this notion that you have a ecological structure and that leads to some ecological processes and those provide functions which can be used by humans. We can... Uh, uh, we can appropriate some of those functions as services and get benefits from them. And then the logical thing is we should maximize our benefits. So there'll be some, once we know what those benefits are, there'll be some magical management, which ensures that those ecological structures are managed in a way to maximize or preserve the benefits we get from them. And it's still, I think uh, most of the research focuses on the top part of that, of that cascade and doesn't go back into management. I think uh, potentially what may be starting to emerge, and so I'm not a governance scholar, so I'm a bit wary about getting into too much detail here, but one of the things which has become increasingly clear is the scale at which we manage our ecosystems tend to be particularly agricultural systems at the farm level. But the the way that we kind of optimise or, or manage or need to manage the ecosystem services is at a landscape scale. And so at least it's starting to to imply that we need to have uh, management of systems which is beyond the individual farm that you you need to figure out ways of kind of incentivizing behavior to to provide ecosystem services at a community or landscape scale um, and of course that's difficult to do because all all of our kind of uh, interventions into agricultural systems are based on incentivizing individual farmers to behave in certain ways so if you look at something like the common agricultural policy it's about, okay, you apply as a farmer. There are actually mechanisms to do this at the landscape scale, but all the 
all the support is for the individual farmer, all the focus is on the individual farmer, and they aren't, we haven't got networks for managing across farms or across landscapes for most of these things. So, um, yeah, I think at least my understanding also is that the, the governance aspect is really what's missing, this back loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's being filled and I'm just not aware of it, but I, I'm guessing it's probably it's not being filled very well at the moment. Yeah, one of the, another or another question that I had to get your perspective on is this concept of or idea of operationalization of the concept of ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. You also hear that with the stuff or the work that I'm doing with uh, Ostrom's social ecological systems framework. How do we operationalize this framework? Mm-hmm. What does that term mean to you? So, um, I guess what I'm really interested in when I think about operationalization is. Um, how we take the underpinning assumptions of those models and kind of make them in into uh, into uh, kind of parameterized models which actually have outputs to them. So the this kind of idea, one of the one of the underpinning assumptions about an ecosystem service uh, perspective, with its underpinning economic logic, is optimization. For example, so how do we how do we think about, for example? Um, the trade-off between different services which might be provided and how do we... Uh, so one of the reasons that people are interested in economic valuation of biodiversity isn't necessarily be- of, of ecosystem services isn't because they're necessarily interested in uh, the economic value because they want a common metric to be compare the provision of different services, right? And for that, you need to have this measure and uh, economic value allows you to compare all those different types of services as problematic as it is as putting a cultural ecosystem service into dollar value at least it means that you can compare the loss of that service to the loss of a provisioning service or regulating service so i'm interested in the the steps you have to take in order to make this seemingly simple cascade model something which can be uh, then used for decision making and uh, the kind of the path dependencies you built into into your model once you do that so we have this nice heuristic model which is just saying okay we can think about these different landscapes and the type of values they might provide to humans to one which actually says we should choose this landscape over this landscape uh, and what assumptions we have to make in order to make that model operationable so that you can actually do it so what does an invest uh, model for calculating the value of a landscape include and what does it not include right so my my starting point for this is always there's a three quotes which I really like, all from old white men, unfortunately, but they're they're nice quotes. So the first is this notion that the model is not the the map is not the territory, from Alfred Kubitsky. Yeah. So basically, this idea that all science is the art of abstraction. Somehow we take complex reality and we abstract it in a way which is useful for making sense of the world in a way which is codified so everyone can agree that this is the same model of the world and it works the same way. And the map is never the territory, so it's always an abstraction. And what really matters is what you include in your your map of the world and what you exclude. Um, and the second one from George Box is all models are useful. All models are wrong. Some models are useful. So um, we always create models which simplify the world and therefore are wrong. Are we creating which ones which are really useful for decision making? So I would argue, for, for example, an operationalization of the ecosystem service concept, which doesn't include something about the distribution of the values, just talks about the aggregate value of those systems, is really not very useful for understanding how decision-making will process. And then the third model, the third quote is from Einstein, which is, um, models should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Right. From an economic perspective, that's often a problem, right? <laughs> we, create these, we create these really neat models of the world which are internally, logically kind of coherent, but bear no relationship at all to the way the world actually works. Right. So I'm interested in see can we create, uh, can we operationalize these these kind of interesting and engaging concepts like ecosystem services in a way which makes them um, somehow useful? Right, right. Yeah, another question that I had, which we were trying to ask the guests who come on the podcast is, is there a particular mentor or person when you think about your work, you had a few quotes there from different people. Uh, do you do you think about a particular person or, or either currently a colleague or in, in the past who's inspired your work? So I guess the, the person who's most inspired my work would be Donella Meadows. So like this uh, systems thinking approach. And I, well, I like her work just because she was a super smart person. But also because she was, she was able to bring some passion into her research. So, the, like the the paper which really inspired me to stay in academia after I did my master's degree was 
uh, her work on on leverage points. And this is a paper which is essentially born out of frustration from sitting there and listening to people talking about sustainability problems and always proposing the same type of solutions which never kind of go anywhere. Right. So um, that's the I guess that's the one person I, I really feel inspired by her her work and she's she writes and she wrote beautifully and kind of yeah and just smart interesting ideas which I think have somehow been a, a lot of the things she wrote about now going back 20 or more years ago I think somehow because she wrote so much good stuff that people miss some of these things I think so I think Amata Sen is someone similar like that because uh, Ellen Ostrom is probably also someone similar like that like they have these big ideas which people kind of get hold of but there's so much else in their work which is kind of uh, I think is ripe for for reinterpretation certainly kind of certainly revisiting well, yeah yeah, well, one of the one of the other questions I had on my list was was the leverage points concept. I know you guys just is the is the big project you guys did on leverage points completed at this point. It's, it's finishing as <laughs> these things never really <laughs> quite finished, right? But yeah, so the the main project is kind of coming to an end as we speak. Yeah, right. Well, I'm, I'm. What is the leverage points concept? If you don't mind explaining what that is. So essentially, as I say, so this was uh, Donella Meadows uh, kind of getting a whiteboard and and uh, kind of writing these lists of different places to intervene in complex systems. So her argument was um, when you have a complex system and you want to affect change, there are different places you can intervene. There are some places where those interventions are relatively easy to make but unlikely to have a really transformative change. So you can intervene in a system in terms of the basic incentives of people to behave in that system. So you can change uh, uh, a tax rate or you can incentivize people to, to build hedges so that there's more more biodiversity on their farms for example and then you can uh, kind of move up the scale so there are things like managing the buffers and stocks uh, thinking about the feedback so shortening the positive feedback loops in in the system so that if you change something you kind of feel that response and you can act to it and then going through these uh, different places to intervene which become increasingly difficult to make the intervention but are more likely to lead to a transformative change so if you can change the design of a system then that's likely to lead to a transformative change if you can change the the paradigm on which a system is based then then you're really likely to believe to lead to transformative change so uh, meadows in her original paper came up with nine and then she expanded that to 12 so we wrote a paper a couple of years ago now um, because 12 is too many things for me to remember we kind of shortened it to four so we we talked about um, these four places you can intervene in the system so you can intervene in a system's kind of physical parameters these all kind of more mechanical changes to a system and then you can intervene in terms of the feedbacks from the system so how knowledge flows in the system uh, how when something acts you get a response from that system shortening those tightening those feedback loops in order to allow us to act more quickly when problems occur uh, then you can think about the design of the system. So this is the kind of institutions and control who has power to design these systems. And finally, you can think about this notion of intent. So this is quite difficult for social ecological systems to think about intent, which is, so we called it something like the kind of emergent uh, orientation to which a system is focused. So economic growth or kind of well-being or food production, whatever it might be. And our argument is somehow that each of those different places to intervene constrains the rest so your kind of the intent of your system con constrains the way the system is designed the design of the system constrains the type of feedbacks you can provide in that system the type of feedbacks kind of uh, help shape the parameters that, that are managed in that system and so if you only act on these what we call shallower leverage points of these parameters you're doing it within the context of the feedbacks design and intent of that system and if you really want transformative change you probably have to manage not just the parameters and what I don't want to say is that uh, managing parameters is unimportant actually this is the thing which in some senses is really the outcome we care about right so so uh, ensuring that um, there is more biodiversity or more well-being of these things requires mechanical changes to the system but the kind of mechanical changes we can currently make like so a classic example would be uh, the common agricultural policy where now some of the changes, mechanical changes they talk about is that you should have three types of, of uh, grain in your field instead of one. That's a, because that's constrained by, by the feedbacks they have in the system and what they know what needs to be done, what needs to be changed, uh, the design and power to control that system and the mindset behind that system, which is still one on agricultural, uh, optimizing agricultural production. And so for me, the, 
the strength of the leverage points perspective, it kind of suggests that you have to think about the interaction between uh, these four places to intervene in the system. And these four places aren't just places to intervene in the system. You can also think about them as characteristics of, of the system itself. So a system has parameters, it has feedbacks, it has a design, and it has an intention. And if you really want transformative change, you probably need to change all of those things in the systems to, to kind of reach sustainability. I don't think we're ever going to have a sustainable food system only by thinking about taxes and incentives. It's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And I think only thinking about, even just thinking about changing the design of that system without thinking about the intention to what that system is oriented is never going to happen. It's only going to be kind of varied within that constraining characteristic of intent in that system. So, so for me, the leverage points perspective is, and I found it a really useful lens for looking at all sorts of different systems. So you can, you can compare um, different systems. So we we have a paper at the moment looking at um, where people have talked about interventions in food and energy systems, and we can map them in terms of uh, Meadows Twelve or R Four. Uh, leverage points and what you can see well there's a couple of things you can see is mainly the interventions people suggest are at the lower end at these kind of feedback and uh, kind of parameter changes people aren't talking about changing the design of the system or, or the intent of the system and you can also see that the the disciplinary background largely constrains where people think about interventions so leverage points as a perspective allows you to break away a bit from from these kind of assumptions about where you can intervene in the system and think about uh, new places where interventions might be possi- possible or necessary. Um, you can also use it, and this is something I'm working on at the moment, have been for a while, maybe we'll finish it, is to look at our scientific models and say where our scientific models uh, provide information about where interventions might happen. So for instance, you could take something like uh, Rockstrom's uh, planetary boundaries model and you can say, okay, what does that tell us about system parameters. What kind of parameters do they include in their mental model of the world when they're thinking about what sustainability is? What does it tell us about um, feedbacks? And those two it does quite well, I think. It tells you a lot about the kind of parameters we have to manage to stay within uh, the kind of living space of the of the planet. It tells you something about the feedbacks between those things. It tells you very little about the design of our institutions, which which kind of control those feedbacks and parameters, and it tells you very little about the intention of the system. So, well, at the moment we're looking for some uh, through some case studies um, and trying to characterise these different scientific models in terms of uh, what opportunity space do they talk about in terms of uh, the characteristics in their models. So, these if these models don't include anything about the intention or design of the system, they can't tell you anything about how we might change those systems in order to make them more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're finding, I think, is something similar is that um, most of our scientific models are focused on that shallow end. And we have very little about kind of uh, abstracting the world in terms of its intentions and its design. Right. Um, well, one of the things this makes me think about it a lot, and I know you've done some work on this as well, is, is boundary objects and boundary mm-hmm. concepts. And do you see the leverage points concept? I know you've also had some work published about ecosystem services, a boundary object or boundary object forces sustainability, particularly. How do you how do you see the concept of boundary objects and how does it apply to, to leverage points and ecosystem services? Yes, yeah, so, right, so I'm supposed to be giving a talk at, at the um, European Society of Ecological Economics on exactly that subject. So. Um, leverage points as a boundary object for ecosystem services. I haven't really thought that through in great detail yet, but um, I'm thinking about it. So I, I actually think it's a really, what I really like about the ecos- about the leverage points um, concept is that it's kind of intuitively graspable by many people from very different backgrounds. So it's a, like, you don't have to lose your, your own disciplinary background because it's this kind of relatively simple abstract notion of, of system characteristics. But I think a lot of people can look, you can reinterpret your own research through this lens of a leverage point. So you can say, okay, so if I'm doing research on sustainable fisheries and I'm using uh, Ostrom's model, how does Ostrom really deal with this notion of the kind of intention of the intent of a system or design of the system? What does she say about feedbacks? What does she say about parameters? So Ostrom is probably an example where I think you could see all four of those in her work. But I think for many uh, kind of aspects of um, sustainability science, only a few of those have been dealt with. So if I look at the ecosystem service concept, again, most of the focus is really on feedbacks via the mechanism of value and price 
to, to management without thinking about the intentions which are behind the management of that system or the design who controls mm-hmm. that system. So you can start to look at it and see where the gaps are in terms of our scientific models for creating useful models. So I would say a, a really useful model in sustainability science is one which captures something about those four characteristics of a system because then you can tell something about which of those need to change if you want to change the system from its current unsustainable state. So my argument would be that we can we can use this as an interpret as interpreting our existing models of the world and uh, then start to bring in people who have expertise in those those characteristics which are currently missing from our models. So maybe that's a really nice example of um, so governance is dealing with a lot with design and management of institutions, right? So it has this kind of design focus somehow. Um, that's missing from the current ecosystem service research and therefore you can start to see okay maybe we need to build governance understanding into our into our ecosystem service cascade models better and then maybe we need to take a step back and um, kind of think about the underpinning assumptions of the model so the intent which is somehow built into that way of modeling the system because the ecosystem service concept still at its heart is a kind of neoclassical um, resource optimization model about maximizing welfare for human human benefits and so we need to think is that the kind of intent that we want to we want to kind of uh, somehow build in implicitly to our our models of the world because then you're going to policymakers and saying this is a way of thinking about our relationship to nature and implicit in that is an intent that uh, uh, all all of nature is a resource which can be optimized for human well-being and so then maybe we need to go back and think about okay is that the kind of intent that we want to build into our models or do we want to say that there are different ways of thinking about how we how we think about our relationship to nature right do you have a specific definition of, of boundary objects or boundary tools that you use so um i probably should i guess i'm not sure that i do um generally like so the my notion of a boundary object is this idea that it's a concept which is um clear enough that you can have a shared understanding with other people so if I talk about uh, intent, design, feedbacks, and parameters from someone from a governance perspective or someone from from a psychology perspective, then usually they can kind of we can have a basic understanding of what those are. But a boundary object should be uh, plastic enough, flexible enough that people can have their own uh, kind of descriptions of those things. And that's for me that's really important because that's where the learning occurs. So I can uh, go to a governance scholar and say, well, I have I have this understanding of of design in terms of uh, uh, how an agro ecosystem is managed, for example. And a governance scholar probably has a very different notion of of design and institutions and power and relationships like that. So so for me, uh, a boundary object is one which is uh, simple enough to have shared understanding, but flexible enough that people can have uh, differences in the way they interpret those concepts so that you can enrich each other's sciences. Right. So I, 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 my favorite metaphor for sustainability science is as a jigsaw puzzle, where we're kind of each creating our increasingly more detailed uh, piece of the jigsaw, my little bit of blue sky with a green bit in the corner, which I understand really well, but I have no idea how it fits with uh, the other person's. And there's thousands of different people doing their own research making more and more complicated jigsaw pieces and not enough people figuring out how those jigsaw pieces fit together. Right, so yeah. for, me, for me, that's what the boundary object is, a way of saying, okay, what is that edge you're looking at and how does that compare to my edge of my research and kind of slotting them together in a way which is beneficial for both people. Yeah, it makes me think about what are some of the definitions or how do we think about multidisciplinarity and interdisciplinarity? That's definitely some of the conversations we're having at our institute at the moment. You know, what does that mean? What is the difference between, first of all, is that is that distinction something that's meaningful to talk about, the difference between multidisciplinarity versus interdisciplinarity? Um, is multidisciplinarity just an aggregation of different parts? Is interdisciplinarity more than the sum of its parts? How do you think about those two concepts? Yes, yeah, so my I guess I would understand uh, multidisciplinary largely as um, everyone goes away and does their own piece of research, and in the end you come together and see, okay, how do our jigsaw pieces fit together now at the end of the research? Whereas for me, interdisciplinary research, genuinely interdisciplinary research, is one where you try and have some shared understanding before you start making your jigsaw piece, and somehow your jigsaw piece 
changes before you've started to do your research. So it's not like, you know, I, I, get, I get the feeling that often what happens is people do their own piece of jigsaw and they come together and they nibble off the corners of their own research so they can fit it with the, the next person's, right? So let's put aside this bit because I can't understand how it relates to your bit, whereas uh, uh, interdisciplinary research starts from the premise, our, our two understandings of the world don't fit together. How can we both somehow be flexible in our understanding so that we can create models which are our own and useful for ourselves, but somehow don't have to nibble off corners in order to, to relate them to each other. So if you're doing, I think if you're doing generally uh, interdisciplinary research, then probably your models change in a way that they don't if you're just doing multidisciplinary research. So, right. Yeah, well, uh, I like the analogy of the jigsaw puzzle because it also you can extend that logic into transdisciplinarity. Is transdisciplinarity just adding another jigsaw piece to the puzzle of people outside of academia working with it, or is it the co-creation of, of additional pieces which then fits into the puzzle? How how would you think about transdisciplinarity? Yeah, so I guess especially being from Loifana, so my uh, the the kind of simplest understanding of uh, transdisciplinarity is just. Uh, research which is happening with non-scientists right somehow um so they're kind of uh, multidisciplinary research where some of the people aren't disciplinary they're they're citizens but for me it's about um the starting point is creating a shared problem definition so trying to understand what your jigsaw is you're trying to build and doing that um so often science starts from this is jigsaw i'm trying to build and I now I'm going to extract information from from uh, stakeholders, people in the real world, in order to build my jigsaw pieces, and then put them together. And uh, for me, transdisciplinary research starts from the thing is we don't really know what the jigsaw we ought to build should be, um, and therefore we need to kind of have a shared understanding of that, that co-creation of the of problem definition, then co-creation of the problem pieces. And I think that matters because um, as scientists, we have quite a lot of power, right, in terms of setting agendas and and uh, discussions and uh, narratives in how the world is or how the, especially with uh, sustainability science how the world ought to be and it's pretty arrogant for us to say how the world ought to be so we go back go back to the example of land sparing and land sharing that starts from a from a very clear but implicit model of how the world ought to be which is we should maximize food production and uh, farmland bird uh, ecosystem services says something uh, similar these are the kind of ecosystem services we know how to measure scientifically so these are the kind of things we ought to be optimizing towards and a transdisciplinary approach would question that that kind of what what is it that we're trying to do what is, what is our our goal in this system that we're trying to model so um i think it's important because it puts a break on on the kind of uh, starting point of of uh, the normative science which is sustainability science fundamentally is it's not just about describing states of the world it's about making judgment about which states of the world are preferable to other ones right. that's difficult to do unless you involve people other than the scientists right right well i had another question on my list this is a bit of a sidestep now but it, it, it's a little bit proximate at least for us who are in germany at the moment it revolves around um, some of the project deal negotiations going around open access publishing mm -hmm. um, i want i was interested in your perspective on how you think about where you're going to submit your papers um when you do you consider open access as a critical deciding factor and if so do you try to make a differentiation between the open access um private companies such elsevier wiley springer uh taylor and francis and such or do you have a particular orientation towards yeah non-profit based journals etc what what is your perspective on on the open access publishing issue um so I don't think about it as much as I should, really. It's one of those things which, if I thought about it more, I'd get slightly depressed, I think, because it's this classic. So here we are dealing with these com com common pool resource access problems, right, and power and uh, where benefits flow to. And we're a bunch of academics who really have a lot of power, and we we fall into this kind of system, which is just it's it's dysfunctional in kind of an extreme way, right? So. It, um, I, we try and publish um, in open access journals because um, I think science is a, it's a common pool resource, right? It belongs to everyone, it ought to belong to everyone. It shouldn't be locked behind paywalls. I find, uh, I find it quite problematic because um, often journals charge a lot of money for open access public publications. So, 
um, it means that if I have a research project which happens to be able to have uh, a budget of 10,000 euros, then maybe I can publish five papers in a in a journal open access. But if uh, I didn't have that and I was doing just as interesting research, I can't publish it in those journals. Right. It just it, that option isn't open to me. That's I find that problematic. Um, so it's one of these collection collective action problems, I think, where it requires uh, the funding bodies essentially to say um, all research must be published open access um, and funding will be provided for that. Um, but I, yeah, so I really don't think that much about it, partly because, and I'm not sure if I should say this in the podcast, that I know how to access papers which um, are not published in uh, open access journals and I use that right at all all the time and i don't feel at all bad about that so i i haven't i don't really um use ResearchGate as much as i used to but for instance all my papers were put on ResearchGate and were accessible to anyone and now they're stopping us right uh, doing that um yeah well there's an increasing use of those types of tools you have academia edu you also have ResearchGate, and there's probably a few others at this point um we're kind of entering that gray space and just a little bit of background for those not familiar the, there's a consortium of German universities and research institutes who are currently negotiating with the big four, you could say, the big four publishers about open access deals. And I think it was just signed uh, maybe even this week or sometime recently with Wiley that your um, German universities are going to get free open access publications in all their closed access journals and 20% discount for publishing in all their open access journals fees. So, and I think they're having ongoing negotiations at the moment with Springer and also with... Um, uh, what's the other one taylor and francis mm. but it's it's still problematic it's still so essentially most of the work which goes into any scientific publication is done for free but or or um unpaid but at least by the uh by scientists including so i'm a i'm a journal editor i review a lot for journals uh, i publish a fair amount of work none of that work is financially rewarded but the uh, all the profit making um publishers they make a huge amount of money. it's a very very profitable business to be in right Elsevier, you have the, the double-edged sword yeah, of public of funding right yeah and yeah and they get funded so this is one thing which really frustrates me is that now many of these journals often offer open access but um you still have to pay the library still pays a fee to to access the journal so you're paying three times probably right you're, you're providing your labor for free and then you're paying for it through uh uh, subscriptions from your university and you're paying for the open access as well so right um I, I don't really know what the solution to to the problem of open access is but you'd think that that's one thing we would be able to solve but the fact that we haven't is right it, it tells you something about these locked-in traps right in terms of path dependencies um, exactly yeah exactly um yeah well one one last question that uh that we were trying to ask guests is if you have a particular theory which you you're not very fond of um yeah, kind of many, most, all of them. Uh, <laughs> so when George Box said that all models are wrong, some models are useful, um, I kind of go a step further and say that wrong, wrong models are actually pretty useful because they tell you what's wrong, um, not just about the model itself, but about the way we approach science. So for me, the land sparing and land sharing is a really good example of that. Um, it started with all these assumptions, like we have to uh, maintain the amount of yield we currently have in the system. Who says that? What? Where did that come from? And then it started to work on, so essentially it started to address questions which have been addressed in economics for a hundred years in terms of resource allocation. Um, so it's kind of reinvented the wheel without thinking where the original wheel was invented and all the discussions people had about, about that kind of thing. Um, so I think, it's a, I think it's a pretty terrible model in terms of um, what it includes. So when it abstracts the world, it abstracts it in a way which uh, loses lots of important details about how the world actually works or how decisions are really made but it's useful because it tells you something about that act of abstraction so where the the disciplinary background that the people came from the fact that if you publish um a piece of work which uses land sparing land sharing you can do it at a global level maybe and get published in science and get lots of kind of um kudos for doing that if you really want to look at a, a kind of system from a socio-ecological perspective, the chances are it gets published in a, in a low-impact journal, requires a lot more work to do it, mm. um, and your findings are uh, much uh, more um, 
ambiguous than they would be. So you don't come up with a, we should have land sparing or we should have land sparing. You say the world is complicated. Um, so I think as an illustrative example of how our current models in dominant models, even in sustainability science, can be problematic, I think it's, it's actually a pretty good mm. model for that. If I had to pick one more, I, I guess I would say the, um, the planetary boundaries I find is similarly not very like so again but it, it depends on what on what you want your scientific models for right so uh, the planetary boundaries model has been hugely impactful like uh, almost none of my students don't start almost all of my to put this not in a double negative almost all of my students start their essays with the notion of planetary boundaries right um but it's not it's just not a very useful concept like it kind of saying that we're in trouble in terms of sustainability fine but in terms of what you actually use that for 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 decision making what i'm starting to see now is people trying to operationalize some aspects of of the planetary boundaries model and because it's built on these kind of premises is that what we have to understand is how we stay biophysically within these within these uh kind of safe operating spaces it's never going to tell you anything about the things we really need to change in the system, which is a, is about the design and intent of those systems. Mm -hmm. So I find I find it slightly problematic that these relatively uh, simple but very engaging uh, models, which actually are not particularly useful, yeah, um, but they they capture a lot of attention. Yeah. And, and so there's some of them which I think so I've seen the the progress of the of the um, land sparing land sharing model and they're now trying to start to bring in some of these concerns but somehow the model is constrained still to this optimization model and so now they try and uh, kind of think a bit more about governance within these contexts but it somehow it never really works you, you need a better starting point for your model right right yeah well dave is there a place that you want to tell people where they can find your work if they're interested um online or, or social media or I was. I heard that you don't have a phone. Is that true? I don't have. A, I don't have a, a handy, as we say in, in Germany. Um, so um, I'm on Google Scholar, which everyone can access. Right. Um, I'm on ResearchGate, which I guess many people can access. And most of my papers are there. Um, the university website is not so easy to access things from. Um, so I don't have a resource where people can download my papers. But I'm happy to send papers to people who are interested. So they can just drop me an email, which is publicly available, my email address. Cool. Cool. Well, Dave, uh, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been interesting. Hopefully we can uh, stay connected and talk soon. My pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. We want to provide content on the podcast that all of you want to hear. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. Again, thank you for supporting the podcast.